Once upon a time, there was a people much beloved of God. He led them out of darkness into a land that he had prepared for them. He gave them commandments that they might know how to live in peace. And this land was fair and fruitful, and they flourished in the land. They had righteous kings, and they shared their wealth with their neighbors. And they had a great temple where they worshipped the Lord. But after many years, they forgot God's law. And they stopped worshipping at the temple. They began to oppress their neighbors. Their kings forsook righteousness. And all the people turned the more eagerly to pleasure and revelry, desiring more goods and more riches. So God sent messengers to tell them to return to him, to obey his commandments. For if they didn't change, they could only be headed to certain destruction. Well, if you haven't heard, Amazon has made cinematic history with the most expensive television show to date, The Rings of Power. This uh, $715 million show, just for one season, uh, it's a prequel of sorts to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, kind of gives you some background to the events that happened there. And one of the major players in that show is this island country called Numenor. And the tale that I just told you comes from Tolkien, and it's about that island country that you're introduced to in the Ring of, Rings of Power. And you may have thought that, well, that sounds a lot like Israel, as we hear in Hosea. And you'd be right. There's a lot of similarities. Uh, God provides for his people. He brings them out of darkness, rescues them from distress, gives them a land, provides for them. But once his people find security in other things, then they turn from him to worship other gods. Uh, I'd ask you to turn with me to Hosea 12, or it's in your worship guide. We're going to be going through two chapters today. If this is your first time to Emmaus Road, we've been going uh, through Hosea the last few months. It's a minor prophet uh, towards the end of Israel's history before they're taken over by the Assyrians. And Hosea, the prophet, is calling them to return to the Lord, to give up their sin and come back to God. And so we're looking at two chapters today. It's a pretty long text. We're not going to be going through the entire thing. Um, uh, there's actually three main points in this chapter that we're going to be touching on, so we're going to take it in chunks. The three points, if you are taking notes, I'm sorry I don't have alliteration today, but um, it's, I am the Lord, your God statements. There's these sections in here where God is telling Israel, this is who I am, and this is what I've done for you. And then there's the sections on how Ephraim has sinned. Ephraim is another name used here for Israel. So essentially how Israel has sinned and broken covenant. And then third, how God is going to judge Israel. So let me pray for us before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together once more as your, the fa your family, your body. And I pray that you would speak to us through Hosea, that you would teach us what you want us to know that you would speak through me, that you would work in our hearts as we sit here today, that we would hear comfort of your love for us, and that we would also realize that you are a God of justice who despises sin. And I pray that you would work in us your perfect will, Lord. In your name, amen. All right, let's look at 
Hosea 12. We're going to start at verse 9, and we're going to jump around just a bit. I'm going to focus on these major themes as we go, okay? So Hosea 12, verse 9, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. Down to verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. Now we'll skip to verse 13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. And now let's jump to chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. 13, 4 and 5. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. This is the word of the Lord. So what we're seeing throughout these two chapters, this theme of God telling Israel, remember who I am? Remember what I've done for you? He starts by reminding Israel who he is. He says, I am the Lord. And you'll probably notice, I think in the worship guide, it's all capital letters for the Lord. A lot of uh, English versions do this. This is not just a title. This is the Lord's proper name. He's saying, this is my name. I am the Lord, your God. He's not just some, some regional God. He's not the God of the Canaanites. No, he is Israel's God. And he says, I'm the Lord, your God, from the land of Egypt. The NIV translates this as, ever since you came out of Egypt. So he's saying, I'm the Lord, your God, and I've been your God, remember, since I brought you out of Egypt. This is all very covenantal language used to remind Israel exactly who God is and what he's done. Think back to the first few chapters of Hosea. Remember, God told Hosea, I want you to marry this adulterous woman, Gomer. Now imagine Hosea chasing down his bride, finds her maybe in some whorehouse, and rather than just berating her right away, he says, Gomer, it's me, Hosea. I'm your husband. Remember, we got married last year. That's what God is doing here. He's reminding Israel of who he is and what he's done for them. I mean, after rescuing them from Egypt, he could have left it at that. But no, he goes on and reminds them, I gave you visions and parables. I sent you prophets to lead you, to protect you, to bring you back to me when you strayed. He could have struck them down as soon as they turned from him, and that would have been his right. But no, he sent them so many things to bring them back to him, showed them so much grace. Chapter 13, verse 4 says, Besides him, there is no savior. He is the only savior of his people. And he's giving them his track record to show them that they can rest in his faithfulness for him. I've done this for you in the past. I'm going to do it in the future. I will take care of you. When I was in high school, my friends and I, we could work the system pretty well to get what we wanted. Uh, we went to a small Christian school, so the class sizes were pretty much non-existent. Um, so for reference, I graduated with one other person in my class. And so because of this, we had kind of a family atmosphere, right? We were with the same 15 people over and over every day. We knew the teachers pretty well. We knew how far we could push them to get our way. And we, we weren't doing any hardcore things. We weren't doing drugs in the bathroom or anything. But we'd just goof off, we'd talk through class, we'd wander the building, we'd push them and push them until they'd let us go on a donut run. And we liked to, our thought was ask forgiveness, not permission, right? And it worked out for us because the teachers, 
preferred to keep the status quo in the school. They preferred this friendly atmosphere, like we're just friends with the students. We've got this kind of tenuous peace. And so rather than cracking down on us and confronting bad behavior, they would kind of look at us, they'd give us the teacher look, or they'd say, what are you doing? Get back to class. So they'd, they'd remind us of who they are and what our relationship to them is, and ultimately they'd give us some grace. And that's what the Lord is doing here. Now, I can't speak to my teacher's motives. You know, they probably should have cracked down on us a lot more. And when God doesn't crack down, he's doing that perfectly. Whether he's meeting out judgment or withholding it, he is doing so perfectly. But right now, he's saying to Israel, I am merciful. Look at how much I have done for you. Look at, I, I could have cracked down on you ages ago, and I didn't. And that's because God is a God of mercy. He is a God of compassion. He is a God of forgiveness. And he wants to show mercy and compassion to his children. Psalm 103.9 says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. True, God is a God of judgment, and we will see that in a little bit. But before his judgment, there is an overabundance of grace. And we, as his people today, can rest in that. We can see in this text... This is how God has acted towards his people before. Brought them out of Egypt, gave them land, sent them prophets. And that same God is our God today. He has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the God today that redeems us and promises us eternal life and gives himself to us through the word and sacraments. Christians, you do not have to wonder at your status before God. He loves you with an everlasting love. He chose you before the foundations of the world. And when you sin and come to him, he sees Christ's righteousness on you. He sees you as his child. And if you are not a Christian today, God wants you to come to him. He wants you to repent and come rest in his grace towards you. He offers you freedom from sin, hope of eternal life, and a new family. So we see that God relentlessly pursues his people— And his people should rest in that. We should take on that identity from God, that we are his children and he does love us. But this passage also shows that his covenant people break covenant with him. So let's read some more. And let's read about Israel's sin. Remember, another name for Israel here is Ephraim. So it's going to call Israel Ephraim. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Let's jump to verses 7 and 8. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And now we'll jump to chapter 13, the first two verses. When Ephraim spoke... There was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. And skip down to verse 6. But when they had grazed, they became full They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they 
forgot me. So not only throughout these chapters is God reminding Israel of what he's done for them, but he's also saying, look at what you have done towards me. He gives them this list of their sins. We see at the beginning, Israel is characterized as feeding on the wind, which is a beautiful phrase that means chasing vain or unprofitable things. It goes on and compares Israel to a merchant holding a false balance. Now these balances, think of uh, Lady Justice. She's blindfolded and holding the scale. That's the kind of scale we're talking about. It was a way for merchants to measure out uh, product and payment. And dishonest merchants would tweak their scales so it would show an incorrect payment amount. So that's what Israel is. They're a merchant tweaking their scales using false balances. They perpetuate injustice and they lie to their neighbors. They lie about their sin. They blatantly sin and then they say, but there's no sin in me. I'm fine. And they kind of try to validate their sin by showing, well, I'm getting all this wealth and no one can prove that I'm using shady business practices, so therefore I'm probably fine. And then from the wealth that they get, they actually craft their own gods. Uh, 13.2 says they make metal images from their own silver. So they have the gall to sin against God, to oppress their neighbors, to get this filthy lucre, and then they turn around and use their, their wealth to create their own gods, gods that they can control, gods that cannot tell them not to sin. And the whole section culminates with this phrase, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Just soak that in for a second. Like the idea here is that they're offering a literal human and then they turn around and show obeisance to an animal. And apparently this is, a, this is a phrase said about Israel, so it's common knowledge to the people that live around there that the people of God sacrifice those made in the image of God to images that they've made in the place of God. And to make it maybe worse, a lot of commentators think that this is probably likely child sacrifice because they're probably co-opting gods from the nations around them gods such as Baal, this Canaanite fertility god. And there were a lot of sick cultic practices used uh, to worship those gods. And so if you're, if you're sacrificing humans, what the commentators think is that if it's anything like what the neighboring kingdoms were doing, it was probably children. And so you'd sacrifice your firstborn in order for Baal to bring you a good harvest, essentially financial prosperity. So Israel is sacrificing their children to maintain this feeble prosperity that they've gotten. And if we go to 13, 5, and 6, the last two, uh, two verses that we'd read, there's this progression of their idolatry. So God knows them in the wilderness, and then once they graze, they're lifted up, and their hearts forget God. Once they feel security in other things, God's people turn from him, and they worship other gods. If I told you, so-and-so is such an FOC, would any of you have any idea what I mean? I'm guessing you don't. It kind of sounds like I might be using an abbreviation for a bad word. Um, well, it's actually just this obscure piece of 2011 slang that just didn't catch on. So according to Urban Dictionary, it means friend of convenience. FOC, friend of convenience. A friend of yours who only really is your friend when it's convenient for them. 
right? We all probably have felt like we have an FOC at one point or another. If you haven't, here, let me give you a list of how to know if your friend is an FOC. It's from thepowerofmisfits.com. Some of you should check that out. It seems right up your alley. So one, they always need help or advice. Two, they're always in trouble. They aren't there when you need them. You're not their first option for social plans. They show no interest in your life. And they disappear for long periods of time. Does that sound like anyone that you know? Well, it kind of sounds like Israel in this passage, right? I mean, they show up to God when they need him, when, they, when they're in trouble. But then as soon as the crisis is averted, they drift away, they disappear. They prefer the company of other gods until they're back in jail calling up God to come bail them out. And it's not just Israel. It's us too. I mean, do we still find fulfillment in vain things? I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit that a lot of pastors do when they talk about vain things and idols, but television. Nothing against television. But I read this really interesting report about how in the year 2021, just last year, Americans streamed 15 million years worth of television. And that's just streaming. So anyone with a VHS or DVD collection, or Blu-ray if you're out there, that doesn't count that. It doesn't count YouTube, it doesn't count streaming social media content, it doesn't count going to the theater. That's just streaming television. That's about five hours a day per American adult. And I'm sure that it's not all just educational content either. And except for maybe the Amish, we Christians do not give up television, I don't think. And nor should we necessarily, but... And we, we can find our fulfillment in a lot of vain things, can't we? Television is just an example. And we're also very good at lying, aren't we? We lie a lot. You ever make plans that you fully intend to bail on? That's, that's lying. For, forgetting your promises or to, to carry through with something you promised. I'm not talking that literally slips your mind, but when you're validating to yourself, like, okay, I'm just going to tell them I forgot. I, I just didn't have time to do this or I decided not to. And how often do we lie to people to cover up gossip that we've told about them? And we do craft idols. It might be called family or a calling or a career. And it might look different than silver calves. But according to the Pew Research Center, 61% of American Christians, that's 61%, believe in some New Age practice, such as astrology or psychics. And I mean, that is not too far from big I idol worship. And what about child sacrifice? We don't place infants on altars, perhaps. But how many Christian couples exchange parenthood for financial security or autonomy? Many of us seek security in gods of consumption or personal enjoyment or freedom, myself included. And I'm not saying not to play or not to plan, not to be financially wise. And I am aware of child loss. And I know that some are not able to have children, some marry older when it's not feasible to have children. But scripture explicitly and implicitly links marriage and child rearing, calls children a blessing, and only ever encourages parenthood. And if we are 
deciding to opt out of that, we should ask ourselves seriously, what is my motivation for this? And all of you singles and widows and empty nesters out there, how are you loving children in your midst? How do you treat the children in our congregation when they cry in the back or run up here? Do you roll your eyes at them? Do you have friends who have children, not just friends in your own period of life? And how do we honor that baptismal vow that we make every time a child is baptized up here and we lift our hand and say, I'm going to help those parents raise this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What does that look like in your life? Christians, don't turn to your own gods for confidence in your life, for assurance, for salvation. We don't need them and they don't offer us anything. God has lifted us from the wilderness. He is our only savior. He sent his son for us and his son intercedes for you right now. Our God knows if a sparrow falls to the ground, will he not know if you fall? God is good and he pursues his people and we in turn become comfortable in our lives. We believe we can control our own destinies by crafting our own gods. But when God's people turn and don't repent, God won't be patient forever. Let's look again at God's word and read about God's judgment on Israel. We'll look at chapter 12, verse 9. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. We'll jump down to verse 14. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. And now we'll jump to chapter 13, verse 3. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Now we'll jump to verse 7. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard will I lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Jump to verse 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. That's not the picture of God we often get in Sunday school, is it? Throughout this chapter, though, he's shown Israel, I have kept my end of the bargain. I have been very gracious towards you and you have not kept your end of the bargain. Here are your consequences. He says, you're going to live in tents. He's going to take them out of their beautiful cities and return them to the wilderness. 
Israel, you're like the mist or the dew or the smoke. You're going to evaporate and disappear. Unless we think that God is just passively allowing this to happen to Israel, no, if you look at the text, he is actively involved in Israel's destruction. He likens himself to a leopard that hunts down its prey. He likens himself to a mother bear uh, ripping apart its prey, defending her, uh, her, uh, her cubs. And he even taunts Israel. He says, where's your king? Where's your princes? Israel, who's going to save you now? And to bring it full circle, he commands the east wind to destroy Israel. The east wind, the thing that Israel was seeking in place of God, God says, no, no. The east wind is going to come, and it's going to destroy you and scatter your riches. And he doesn't just vow to destroy those who are directly responsible for Israel's sin, no. He says he's going to destroy their children. He's going to rip them out of their mother's wombs and dash them to pieces. That is how seriously God takes it when we sin. That is how seriously he takes it when his covenant people trespass against him. I'm sure a lot of you remember hearing those famous, perhaps infamous words, just wait until your father gets home. And I'm sure plenty of you have also said those. I've heard them before, and my mom was no pushover. She could handle most of what my siblings and I threw at her, especially my younger siblings. It's always them. And, <laughs> but I did hear those words occasionally. And when I heard those words, I would be sent up to my room to await the arrival of my father. And while I sat up there, I would just agonize over what I knew was coming, the punishment that I knew was coming for me. I wasn't being punished yet, but I knew what my punishment was going to be, and I knew that it was coming for me. God's got Israel in their room, and he's told them, just you wait until I get home, because when I get there, it is not going to be good for you. And this is what Israel deserves. And this is what we deserve, too. Look at the front of your worship guide quick. I'm not going to read the entire quote, but it says, Oh, says Satan, you need not make such a matter of sin, for God is a God of mercy. He's more prone to pardon his people than to punish his people. How often do we live by that lie? True, God is a God of mercy, and he does love to pardon his people. And we've seen that throughout this text, that God gives and gives and gives to his people. But so often we tell ourselves this lie that God is only a God of grace and mercy and compassion, and he's going to forgive this sin. He's going to forgive me again. He's going to forgive me again. And we live by that lie. God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice, and he will not be mocked. And we mock him so much. We sin more and more, and we raise up our own idols in his place. And God tells us what the consequences of this sin is. The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation. And if you don't know him, come to him. He is our only Savior. 
he is ready to receive you and to provide mercy. And Christian, you can't serve two masters. You cannot cling to the silver calves of this world thinking that they will provide you security and fulfillment, for they will not. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. I suppose for anyone out there who is watching through the rings of power, I should give you a spoiler. Uh, Spoiler alert, you can cover your ears. Uh, Numenor, they don't make it. They get destroyed. This island city in this television show, they receive so many warnings, and yet their king continues to lead his country towards rebellion. And I don't know if this is going to be in the next season, two seasons out if you keep watching, but it's going to happen. The citizens continue to obsess with consumption, and they practice the equivalent of Satan worship in Tolkien's world. And in reward for their sin, this entire nation is submerged and destroyed. And like Numenor, God's judgment came for Israel. And it didn't come through some natural disaster. Israel wasn't swept off the map by some wave, but they were besieged and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Their beautiful land was taken from them and their mighty works were laid waste. But that was not the end for God's people. No, because God sent a savior to search for his people in the wilderness in the land of drought. He sent a savior who would protect them from the whirlwind of sin and who would conquer death's sting. And this savior told us, you might be living in tents now, but one day there is a city that will be yours. And all we must do is confess our sins repent of our wrongdoing, and return to the one who loves us with an everlasting love.